Life's everyday mystery solved. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Coming up at the bottom of the hour today, my guest will be Dr. Brian Ward, professor of medicine at McGill, and he is an expert on vaccines. We're going to talk about uh, his efforts to make a vaccine from uh, uh, plant products. That's going to be interesting. But of course, we'll also talk about the, the variants and some of the side effects of the vaccine. So we're going to cover a lot of, uh, of ground. So we'll leave the vaccine discussion uh, till then. Back in 1991, 60 Minutes, which is the longest-running uh, show on, on television. It actually debuted in 1968. And uh, it's a fascinating program. Um, I'm sure many of you are familiar with it. There's usually three segments to the show, and uh, they have really fascinating topics. But anyway, back in 1991... There was a segment that caused a tremendous amount of interest and actually caused a shopping frenzy. The Monday after it aired on Sunday night, people were going to grocery stores, to wine shops, to stock up on wine. Why? Because the segment, uh, entitled The French Paradox, had focused in on the benefits of drinking red wine. What was the French paradox as presented in that segment of 60 Minutes? Uh, Morley Safer, who was the host at that time, asked the question, how is it that the French in France, who smoke more than Americans, who eat all those buttery foods, they eat fatty cheeses, 40 pounds per person per day, um, per capita, and they stuff their geese, and eat the cholesterol-laden goose liver. How is it that they have fewer cases of heart disease than Americans? And this was said to be the French paradox. So Morley Safer uh, went to Lyon in France to interview a lot of uh, interesting researchers, primarily Dr. Serge Renault, who was doing a great deal of work in this area trying to figure out what was the relationship between diet and uh, heart disease. And the uh, segment basically ended up focusing on, on red wine. The suggestion being that the French drink a glass or two of red wine a day, and uh, the alcohol in the red wine prevents platelets. Platelets are, are fragments of cells in the body that play a role in, in the coagulation of the blood. Now, of course, blood coagulation is very important when you have an injury. You need to form a scab. You need to, to stop the, the, the blood from, from losing blood. However, uh, platelets can also stick to the side of arteries, build up there, and cause uh, impaired blood flow, and that leads to uh, various kinds of heart disease. And if you get a blood clot in one of the narrowed arteries, it can cause a heart attack or indeed a, a stroke. And uh, Dr. Renault talked about how uh, alcohol prevents the aggregation of these platelets and suggested that this was the reason why heart disease was less prevalent in, in France than in, uh, in North America. People took that message and started to stock up on wine. However, that was only one piece of the segment in that 1991 uh, 60 Minutes uh, episode because Dr. Renault also discussed a number of other differences between French life and American life. For example, milk. 
Americans drink much, much more milk than, than uh, the French. And in fact, uh, the French don't drink very much milk at all. But of course, they eat a tremendous amount of cheese. Why, uh, cheese shops are all over France, and, and the variety is, is just uh, staggering. And uh, Renault talked about an experiment that he had carried out with rats, where uh, one set of rats was fed milk, the other set was fed uh, camembert cheese, as it turned out, and the amount of calcium and the amount of fat in those diets were the same, calculated to be the same. And then he looked at the poop that the animals produced. And amazingly, he found that when cheese was the uh, main feature of the diet in the rats, most of the dairy fat was excreted in their poop. However, when milk containing the same amount of fat was ingested, it did not go. It did not end up in the poop. It basically ended up in the animals' arteries. He knew this because uh, the animals were eventually sacrificed. They were dissected, and their coronary arteries were investigated. And it turned out that they had arterial deposits uh, in the wine group. In, in sorry, in in the milk group, but not in the uh, cheese group. But that somehow was forgotten by the viewers who concentrated only on what was said about uh, about red wine. And then furthermore, they discussed other aspects of French life. The French eat three meals a day. That's it. They don't snack in between. Whereas in North America, snacking is a part of lifestyle. North Americans eat every couple of hours. And uh, also there's the question of the freshness of the food. In France, meals are usually prepared fresh. People go shopping every day. While in North America, so many of the meals come in boxes, which are then microwaved. There's also the question of when you have the biggest meal of the day. In France, it's at noon. North America tends to be at supper time. Also in France, meals are usually social occasions with friends, with lots of, of chatter. In North America, uh, they tend to be wolfed down. In fact, in, in New York City, uh, many people will have lunch at, at uh, places like Papaya King. I've actually been there, I've seen what happens. And you can go in, uh, buy your hot dog and, and sugar-sweetened beverage, uh, wolf it down and be out of there in three and a half minutes. And that's very often an American lunch. And that is not what happens in, in France, where they sit down, they enjoy the meal. And that may be also part of this so-called uh, uh, French paradox. So that is the way that episode was presented. But what people took away was red wine is the sort of the, the magic bullet. And sales of red wine shot up in the four weeks following that episode. Red wine sales went up by 44%. That's very significant. That's a, It, it uh, translated to about 2.5 billion bottles more than had been uh, purchased in uh, the same amount of, of time the year before. Pretty interesting. And... Uh, the favored wine was Merlot. Merlot was the favored wine. Uh, its sales just shot up very, very uh, dramatically. Well, in 2004, 60 Minutes did another episode looking back at the French paradox to see what had happened in the intervening years. And by that time, there had been a significant amount of, of research done on the chemistry of, of wine. 
especially about the specific components of the wine. And one of those components had been getting a lot of publicity, and that was a chemical called resveratrol. Now, that's not found only in red wine. It's found in, in, in uh, the skin of peanuts, for example. It's found in many, many uh, berries. But the reason that by 2004 it generated uh, so much interest was because uh, Dr. David Sinclair at Harvard, who actually was one of our speakers at, at last year's uh, Chartier Public Science Symposium, had discovered that resveratrol could activate a gene in the body called the CERT gene, which was a gene that produced a protein or a set of proteins called sirtuins that were linked with, with good aging, that is healthy aging, and with longevity. So now there seemed to be some sort of rationale for why red wine would have benefits, except, as it turned out, the amount of resveratrol found in the wine was not significant, and you needed a lot of resveratrol in order to turn on this search gene, which is associated with longevity. And that started a, all kinds of research into coming up with supplements that contained resveratrol. And that research is still going on today. Unfortunately, there are no compelling studies that have been done in spite of 20,000 research papers published in, in, in this area. There are no compelling studies that show that taking resveratrol supplements uh, increases longevity. But maybe some derivative of uh, resveratrol can be put into a pill form. So the, the issue is still uh, open, although Glaxo, the, the company that was doing a lot of this research, now has shelved uh, much of it. It because the results just were uh, not there. So what about the red wine? Well, the idea that uh, ethanol, that is the alcohol in red wine, reduces the uh, uh, sort of the, the stickiness of platelets, I think that is well-founded. Uh, well so uh, drinking that glass of wine uh, with a meal is a, is a good idea, especially if you cut down the size of that meal. Because when we compare French eating habits to North American, what we find that maybe the biggest difference is that they just eat less food. And interesting enough, it turns out that if you put yourself on a low-calorie, that will activate this so-called longevity gene, which uh, cranks out the sirtuins that are involved in, in, in longevity. So there, there you go. Uh, nothing wrong, I guess, with drinking uh, one glass of uh, red wine a day, but you don't want to overdo it, obviously, because ethanol is also a known carcinogen. All right, we're going to take a break here. We're going to check for traffic. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. Science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. have a text question here about uh, DMDM Hydantoin, which is a preservative that you'll find in many cosmetic shampoos, etc. And the question is whether or not uh, it can lead to hair loss. It's a preservative. Uh, uh, DMDM hydantoin releases formaldehyde, uh, but it releases it in a time-controlled fashion. So the amount of formaldehyde present at any given time is, is very, very little. It is a very effective preservative. And of course, uh, when you talk about cosmetics, you don't want bacterial growth in there. You use a cream, you stick your fingers in the cream, you put it on your skin, you put your fingers back into, into the uh, container, and now you've contaminated it. So you need a preservative in there. And DMDM hydantoin is one of those formaldehyde, very effective preservative. 
The only problem here is that it is possible to develop an allergy to formaldehyde. It's possible to develop an allergy to, to so many different things. You know, it's been said that if it exists in the world, there'll be someone who's gotten a, a reaction to it. But uh, uh, by and large, uh, cosmetic products such as this cause very, very few uh, adverse reactions. I, I'm not going to say that it's impossible because I said you can develop an allergy to formaldehyde, but, but to develop an allergy to DMDM hydantuin is very rare. And as far as causing hair loss, I, I'm absolutely unaware of that. I've never even heard that allegation before. So I would have no concern about uh, DMDM hydantuin in a, in a cosmetic. <clears throat> okay, I want to tell you an interesting story. Uh, because, uh, as you know, I, I, I talk a, a lot about pseudoscience and about quacks. But these days, uh, the, the quack world is just exploding. However, I also like to look back in terms of history at some of the outrageous things that we have witnessed. So let me tell you a little bit about Elijah Perkins. Dr. Elijah Perkins graduated from Yale University, and this was in the latter half of the 18th century. And uh, he began to practice surgery in Norwich, Connecticut. So he was, in fact, a legitimate physician, or you know, as legitimate anyone could be, graduating in the 1700s. <clears throat> a co-founder of the Connecticut Medical Society, Perkins was kind of an inventive guy. Magnetic therapy was the key to health the good doctor decided. So what did he do? He patented a pair of metallic rods. He called them tractors for some reason, T-R-A-C-T-O-R-S, which through bodily stroking would draw pain to the extremities and then completely out of the body. Well, people began to sing the praises of these tractors and sales zoomed, especially after George Washington purchased a pair for his family. Because as we well know, when the president of the U.S. does something, there are a lot of people who want to follow in his footsteps, whether they are doing something smart or not. Anyway, fellow physicians didn't think much of the tractors and accused Perkins of peddling nonsense. And they said that, you know, this was a ridiculous thing to be uh, suggesting that these metallic rods could uh, somehow suck uh, disease out of the body. And uh, he, he sort of became a, a, a pariah. Uh, and uh, Perkins, of course, uh, retorted with claims of closed-mindedness and allegations that his colleagues did not really want to cure patients, lest their income suffer. But it soon became apparent that the promise of the product was not delivered, and sales began to wane. Perkins then decided to send his son to England to exploit the European market. The cycle started over. At first, sales based on numerous testimonials soared. All went well until Dr. John Haygarth of Bath became skeptical and made a pair of tractors from two pieces of wood, which he painted to look like metal. He produced phenomenal cures. The tractors worked even better when he used a stopwatch to time treatments, demonstrating that serious scientific action was underway. Haygarth then sent samples of his wooden tractors to other physicians who reported and published astonishing results. When the truth was revealed, Benjamin Douglas Perkins was sent packing and returned to the U.S., albeit with a fair bit of British money in his pocket. 
In the meantime, the elder Perkins had hatched another scheme. Yellow, a yellow fever epidemic was sweeping New York, and he had the solution. A remedy made of common salt and vinegar, he claimed, was infallible. Unfortunately, it didn't work. Elijah Perkins himself contracted yellow fever and died. But the idea of using magnets for therapy did not die with him. In the 1970s, Soviet scientists declared that vodka exposed to magnetic rays was effective in killing cancer cells. Vodka consumption increased, but cancer cure rates did not. On a more serious note, an Oklahoma physician in the 1980s claimed to have evidence that sleeping with refrigerator magnets attached to the head can boost energy, improve skin tone, and enhance the sex drive. His rationale? Based on rat experiments, Dr. William Philpott alleged that magnets can stimulate the brain's pineal gland to produce a hormone called melatonin, which extends the rat's lifespan. Meanwhile, at the California Institute of Technology, researchers have discovered that the human brain contains tiny crystals of magnetite, each only about a millionth of an inch long. They suggest that somehow these crystals may regulate cell function, which could then be either positively or negatively affected by exposure to external magnetic fields. Fascinating. Perhaps Paracelsus, the great medieval alchemist who coined the phrase, only the dose makes the poison, put it best. Magnetism is the king of all secrets, he proclaimed. And today, of course, we still don't know exactly how magnetism works. Uh, it is a fascinating phenomenon, and it's not surprising that people are so intrigued with it and have ascribed various kinds of miraculous cures to being stroked with, uh, with magnets. All right. Uh, we have all kinds of risks in life, right? And, of course, I've spoken many times about the uh, risks of uh, smoking cigarettes. Uh, this was one of the first uh, established, uh, well-established uh, relationships between uh, illness and some sort of uh, habit. And uh, if you're looking for another reason to give up smoking, uh, let me tell you about it. Home fires kill more people in North America than all natural disasters combined. And the prime cause of home fires is not faulty electrical wiring or a malfunctioning furnace. It is the cigarette. Numerous fires are started by smokers falling asleep in bed with their still-glowing cigarettes kindling the sheets, pillowcases, or carpets. Pipe smokers and cigar smokers rarely suffer this fate. That's because cigarettes are specially treated, so they should not extinguish easily in order to eliminate the constant relighting that afflicts pipe smokers. Process is simple. The paper and tobacco are treated with saltpeter or potassium nitrate. Saltpeter has an undeserved reputation as a killjoy when placed into the food of men with amorous thoughts on their minds. But as a combustion aid, it is excellent. When potassium nitrate is heated, it decomposes to potassium nitrite and oxygen. The oxygen, of course, supports combustion and keeps the cigarette lit. In fact, a primitive fuse can be made by soaking string in a solution of potassium nitrate. When dried, it burns very effectively. So now we have another reason to butt out. Cigarettes can kill us both from the inside and the outside. As I mentioned, coming up after the news, my guest will be Dr. Brian Ward, 
expert in vaccination. We're going to discuss some of the issues that have cropped up recently about the safety and efficacy of the vaccines that we're all looking forward to getting. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. Your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Dr. Brian Ward is a professor of medicine and a McGill colleague, and I think he knows more about vaccination than just about anyone in Canada. He's a a true expert in infectious diseases, and he even works on developing vaccines and is right now involved in developing a plant-derived vaccine for COVID-19. There's so much stuff to discuss here about vaccination, which is the reason I, we invited uh, Brian to, to chat. Hi, Brian. Hi, Joe. Well, so much going on that it's hard to know where to start, but I think the, the question of the one or two doses is on everyone's lips. What do we really know? How effective is a single dose uh, as opposed to the, the uh, two doses three weeks apart, and uh, is the uh, idea of giving only one dose so that we vaccinate more people before the second dose, is that a rational thought? Um, well, the um, vaccine schedules are typically designed to um, generate immunity as quickly as you can. And so um, typically when more than one dose is required, um uh, people don't study whether the interval between doses, you know, can be one, two, three, or, you know, four months. Um, what, what we generally know is that, you know, anything less than 21 or 28 days isn't good. So right now what a lot of jurisdictions are doing um, is they are making a very reasonable assumption that the immune response to one dose will be uh, pretty good, certainly better than nothing, um, and that the people who've received one dose can wait a couple of months before they get their second dose, presumably when more doses are, will become available, um, and the, then they will have that high level of immunity. So the, 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 the compromise that many people are suggesting that we make is that we try to get everybody sort of that 50 to possibly as high as 80 or 90 percent um, protection from the first dose over that, whatever it is, two or three or four month period. Um, And then when more vaccine becomes available, we give everybody that booster shot that will help to give them longer term immunity. Right. My understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, is is that the question here isn't as much the efficacy uh, of the vaccine, but the longevity of the antibodies that form. So that if you get just one vaccine, I mean, it will offer, as I I think, about 52 uh, percent protection after 10 days and up to 80 percent after 20 days. But is is not the, the question that without the second dose, the protection will not last as long. Yeah, that's uh, that's almost certainly true, Joe. The the second dose very often is the important dose for keeping that immunity at a high level for a long time. Um, but th- there's no question that that immunity after two doses is a little bit better uh, than after one dose. Uh, but but many people do get a fairly high level of protection even after that first dose. So basically, the this idea of, of giving one dose to more people is, is actually sound science, right? In the long run, you're you're protecting more people. Yeah, well, it's 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 sound population level science. 
right? It's it's it um, it takes into account that there you know there there aren't enough doses of vaccine for everybody who re- could really use one, um, and and you know fifty percent protection if it's that low is still way better than no protection, uh, and so you know providing more people with that. Uh, let's say 50 to 70 percent protection um, for a couple of months while we wait for the manufacture and distribution of the vaccines to come up to speed um, is is a, a fairly I, I think it's actually very good public health science. Mm-hmm. So you think that Quebec is going to go along with this and, and implement this? Well, they, they, the uh, Institut National de Santé Publique du Québec released a, a position paper that suggested that that was the way to go. I, I'm not sure if uh, you know the, the decision has been made yet to go that way. But if if the vaccines keep trickling out at a slow pace, um, then I think that would be a very reasonable strategy. Mm-hmm. Okay. Next, the question that that comes up is the, the side effects and whether or not uh, it, they are more frequent than with other vaccines or, or about the same, more serious, less serious? Uh, well, yeah, it's a, it's a good question, and everybody um, uh, is listening to, you know, the, the, the horror stories on the one side of people who, you know, say they've had horrible reactions. And, you know, we also are starting to hear stories about people who say, you know, the like some of the 80 and 90 year olds who say, you know, I got the vaccine and it was nothing. So um, the the data from the clinical trials um, shows that uh, these vaccines, and I'm saying these vaccines, these are the ones that have published results. Um, you know, they, they are they are fairly reactogenic. Um, they uh, they cause a, a fair number, uh, probably the majority of people, to have some local effects, certainly pain at the injection site, and fairly high numbers, 20%, 30% after the first dose um, will have things like headache or fatigue, a little bit of chills. Um, and then for most of the vaccines, there's actually a little bit of an increase with that second dose. And the second dose um, you know, under the regular schedules comes between 21 and 28 days after the first. Um, so you're, you're kind of ready for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and so unlike many of our other vaccines where the second or third dose have a little bit lower reactogenicity, uh, these pandemic vaccines uh, appear to be at least as reactogenic with the first and the second dose. So that might be a, another good reason to perhaps spread out the time between the first and the second to give people a chance to forget mm-hmm. how sore their mm-hmm. arm was. Now, most of the, the serious reactions, the anaphylactic reactions, although there have been very few, have been in, in people who already um, had known allergies and, and had uh, prescriptions for EpiPens. Yeah, that that's true. I, I'm, so the, the numbers... Uh, vary. I've heard 21 and I've heard 28 or 29 cases of anaphylaxis. Uh, but the, the large majority of those cases, uh, as you say, are in people who have um, a history of uh, allergy to other things and serious allergy to other things because they're carrying an EpiPen. Um, they also happen quickly. Uh, the large majority of them happen, have happened within 30 minutes during that period of observation uh, that you're asked to stay at the vaccine uh, vaccination site. Yeah, one of my concerns, and I've voiced this before, is that when you have so many people being vaccinated in a relatively short time, there will be some people who die, nothing to do with the vaccine. 
right? I mean, just st statistically. And the anti-vax people will jump on that. And this is already happening. There was this, this case of this physician, I think in Florida, who died. And uh, there's absolutely no evidence that it had anything to do with the vaccine. I, I'm not sure that they've really determined exactly what he died from. But of course, they're already publicizing this, that, you know, because he died within 24 hours or whatever of getting the vaccine, that, you know, that was the, the case. And I think it's important to point out to people that, that statistically, when you're talking about uh, millions of people being vaccinated, some will die within 24 hours of vaccination, nothing to do with the vaccination. Sure. Yeah. And, and I think anybody who's ever been involved in a clinical trial with older individuals um, you, 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 of course, need to be prepared for that. Um, all of the studies of influenza vaccines in older individuals um, have um, uh, fairly high rates of uh, people who end up in hospital or, or dying um, simply because, you know, they, you are vaccinating people who are over the age of 65. Um, and uh, gen generally, in fact, in, in all of those influenza vaccine studies in older people, the rate of hospitalizations and deaths is just as high in the placebo arm, you know, the people who got a, a mock vaccination as, as those who got a real vaccination. So, Right, right. And, uh, of, of course, in, in, uh, in the, uh, both the Pfizer and the Moderna trials, there were people who had serious reactions in the placebo arm. And, of course, you know, that, that doesn't get the publicity that... Uh, that it should get. Then we also have this this issue, of course, with the variants, and I, I want to get into that because that's that's kind of a, a complex thing. But we've got to take a little bit of a break here to to check for traffic. Can you just hang on for a couple minutes, and we'll of, talk of about this, and then we will talk about uh, the company that uh, you're involved with producing the plant-derived vaccine. My guest is Dr. Brian Ward, professor of medicine at McGill and an expert in vaccination. We'll be right back. Life's Everyday Mystery Solved, The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Grade A milk emulsified, maltodextrin alkylide, silicon dioxalide, lots of sugar. Hey, all right. My guest is uh, Dr. Brian Ward, uh, professor of medicine at McGill and expert on vaccination. And uh, we're going to talk about these variants. And uh, over the last couple of weeks, I've, I've learned more about these variants than I ever thought I would ever have to delve into. Much of it I learned from you. So uh, what's, go what's going on? How much should we worry about these variants and what exactly are they? Uh, well, um, unfortunately, RNA viruses, all RNA viruses, um, mutate uh, faster than, than other viruses because they don't have the genetic machinery to correct mistakes that they make when they're replicating themselves, when they're making other copies. So all genetic machinery makes mistakes occasionally, and RNA viruses make mistakes more frequently than most. Um, the SARS coronavirus uh, uh, that came out of um, Wuhan um, is an RNA virus, and so it has been mutating the whole time. Um, Mutations often um, cause, you know, are a dead end for the virus, where that mutation actually harms the virus, and of course that vir that variant doesn't survive. Um, but other mutations cause the virus to become either more or less virulent, or better able to be transmitted from one animal to another, or one human to another, or between species. 
And it looks like the variants that have emerged recently in the UK and possibly also in South Africa um, uh, have a better ability for one reason or another uh, to move from one human being to another. So they transmit more effectively. And, and of course, that's a, that's a big problem. They, they don't appear to be more dangerous, um, but from a public health point of view, of course, a virus that transmits more easily is more dangerous. And of course, uh, it, it means that uh, this two-meter distance, right, that we've been talking about, which basically is an educated guess, should probably be lengthened, right? Because if it's more infectious, you probably need fewer viral particles to be infected. Well, yeah, as I said, we don't really know yet whether um, the, the, the increase in its ability to transmit is because there's more virus in the nose or of somebody, or, or perhaps even that it makes people sneeze more often. Um, and so, you know, for, for the moment, the public health guidelines about washing hands, wearing masks, and keeping your distance, um, they are probably what we should maintain until more about um, how these new variants actually are transmitted. And I would guess the more people who are infected and the longer time that they infected for, the greater the chance that mutations develop, right? Because they, the virus keeps replicating inside their body. Yeah, that, that's certainly true. Uh, and there, there's good evidence with other RNA viruses and other viruses in general that if, if people have uh, diminished immune responses, either uh, because they are naturally less able to mount immune responses or because they're taking medications, that some people can, can shed these viruses for, for many months. Um, and, and, of course, that is an, the, the ideal environment for a virus to try out new um, genetic sequences. Okay, let's get down to, to your particular interest in, in working with, uh, or at least uh, deriving uh, from plant material. What, what is this all about? And I know that the, the company that you have an affiliation with is Medicago. Is, is, is it pronounced Medicago? It's, it's actually Medicago. Medicago. Um, and it's, it's Latin for alfalfa. Um, uh, that's because when the company was first founded more than 20 years ago, um, it was a spinoff of University of Laval and Agriculture Canada. Um, they were working with um, transgenic alfalfa plants trying to produce proteins like insulin antibodies. Um, but around the time that I started working with the company in 2003, um, they had switched over to uh, a, a transient transfection system, um, which I'll explain in just a second, um, using an Australian uh, relative of the tobacco plant. So it's an Australian weed called Nicotiana benthamiana. Um, and... What, basically what you do is you, you deliver a genetic sequence that you want to have expressed into a protein um, into the plant cells using a, a bacterium that normally infects plants. Um, and um, the, you, you trick the plant cells into producing this protein. In the case of the coronavirus, um, we trick the plant cells into producing the spike protein which is on the outside of the viral and is a very uh, good vaccine antigen. So how far along is this? 
Uh, it's 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 actually compared to regular vaccine development, it's it's gone blindingly fast. Um, uh, we, like many other people, um, got the genetic sequence as soon as the Chinese signed it into the public domain. Um, and within four or five weeks, we actually had our first um, uh, a little candidate, uh, what, what's called a virus-like particle. So when the spike protein is produced in the plant cells, it actually goes to the surface of the plant cell and it forms these little balls that look like uh, viral particles on the surface of the cells. Um, and so they're about, about the same size as the virus and they have the spike protein just on the surface. Um, so the body, when it, uh, when it sees this virus-like particle injected into the muscle, it believes that there's a virus there and so it reacts quite strongly. So basically, it's, it's just another method to introduce the spike protein into the body so that antibodies will form to it. Right? Uh, well, antibodies and T-cell responses. Um, uh, antibodies are almost certainly very important, um, but um, T-cells are also, uh, uh, well, in fact, T-cells are critically important for responding to almost all viruses, and they're certainly important for maintaining long-term immunity. So uh, a vaccine that can um, stimulate the body to make both antibodies and T-cell responses is, is presumed to be a better vaccine than one that just makes antibodies. And is, this, is your plant-based vaccine more likely to produce a T-cell response than the messenger RNA vaccines? Uh, well, not, maybe not more than the messenger RNA vaccines, but certainly more than the other inactivated um, uh, spike protein vaccines. Um, the RNA and DNA vaccines do make antibodies and cellular responses, um, but but of the protein and adjuvant vaccines, um, the the one that we're producing in plants, uh, we know that it makes very strong antibody and cellular responses. Um, so so we're very optimistic that it's going to be at least as good as the vaccines that are currently um, so what time, being rolled what out. So what type of time frame are we looking at for this to be uh, available? Well, we're, we're currently in what's called phase two studies, which we hope will be finished um, by the end of January, early February. And the phase two study will roll directly into our phase three study. And the phase three study is like the other companies' phase three studies, we're, we're counting cases. Um, and there are now so many cases um, uh, where we plan to study the, the vaccine, which is North America, Latin America, and some European countries. We're fairly confident that we'll know how well the vaccine works uh, by the end of the spring, early summer. Um, and as soon as we have um, 80, 90 cases collected in our phase three study, um, we will uh, um, uh, be, well, not we, not me, certainly, but somebody uh, who is um, uh, not helping to run the study will unblind. Mm -hmm. So look at what the results are and tell us whether it's a good idea to continue the study or not. And we're very hopeful that we'll have results uh, like some of the other companies where we see, you know, 85, 90% protection. How does uh, production and cost compared to the other vaccines? Well, cost is certainly not my area, um, uh, certainly not my expertise. Uh, production, we have production cap capabilities in Quebec and St. Foy, a small 
pilot plants, um, and our major production facility is in North Carolina. Um, we will be able in those two facilities to produce somewhere between 80 and 100 million doses of vaccine. And as, as you may be aware, the Canadian government has actually um, uh, given Medicargo a very large um, uh, uh, grant award contract to uh, uh, produce these vaccines. We are also building a, a very large uh, pharma greenhouse um, in uh, Quebec City right now, uh, probably one of the largest in the world. Um, and when it is ready and, and you know, licensed to produce vaccines, um, we will be among the people who can produce up to a billion doses of vaccine a year. Unfortunately, it'll be a little bit late for this pandemic because it won't be ready until the end of 2023. Um, but it will certainly be good Canadian production facility um, for the next pandemic because as disruptive as this one has been, it unfortunately will not be yeah. the last. Sounds good, Brian. Sounds good. So tell me, have you been vaccinated? Um, no, I'm not a frontline uh, medical worker. Uh, I'm not in, in that category. So I'm waiting my turn. <laughs> okay. And just uh, finally, because we only have a few seconds here, you know, all this business, the talk out there uh, from from the uh, fear mongers that uh, somehow the messenger RNA vaccines will alter our DNA and make us into genetic mutants and that we don't know the long-term consequences and we could be looking at a catastrophe. What do you say? Well, yeah, we, we don't know the long-term consequences of any vaccine when we first introduce it. Um, but the history of, of vaccines has actually been, uh, uh, I think, remarkably safe. Uh, really, they're, uh, they are, as a class, among the safest medical interventions that have Good. ever been introduced. All right. Unfortunately, that is it. We've run out of time. Thanks a lot, Brian. Okay. Okay. Bye. That's it. We've run out of time. But, of course, we'll be back with you same time, same station next week. Until then, I'm Joe Schwartz, hoping all the chemistry in your life comes out just right.